The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Excuse me. Uh, excuse me. Did something happen? So what does the emergency plan say? Contact the governor, National Guard, and state troopers. Are we under attack? Son, I don't want to hear that word again. Now look, this could have been a test, could have been an accident. There's a military bases near Denver. One explosion does not make an attack. We stay calm, the town stays calm, okay? I don't know where the mayor is, but maybe it's time we came up with a plan ourselves. What's going on, Gray? We're making speeches. With all due respect, Mr. Mayor, we have a missing bus, no police, firemen doing policemen's jobs. How dare you politicize it? I'm not talking to my opponent. I am talking to my mayor. Now, I don't care about the election. I care about survival. We just might be on our own here. And I need to know what my mayor intends to do. Folks, I know we've been through a lot tonight. We had all hoped that this was an accident. But the unfortunate truth is there was another explosion in Atlanta. I've been busy trying to contact the governor to coordinate the emergency. There is no report of anything happening in Topeka. How are we going to get reports without television? Or no phones. What about New York? We don't know anything about New York. How are we going to get the power back on? Drinking water, okay? One at a time. Please, just calm down. Calm down. My boy is still out there. The sheriff is out there right now looking for your boy and my boy. What about everybody else? Police officers out But we need to know what you're going to do now. answer Sheriff? Chief? Yeah. Damage? Fires? Buildings? Nothing, Mr. Mayor. The town's fine. Well, let's hope you're right. What does that mean? Do we have any Geiger counters? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 19, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Well, we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to this, our second edition of 2012, where 519-661-3600 is still the number you can call to reach us if you have anything to express with regarding our comments today and our topics today. Also, email feedback at justrightmedia.org. Talking about first strike capabilities and how should a country view the potential of a nuclear you know, disaster. Not a very easy issue to deal with, is it, Robert? No, but I do have a few points to say. Yeah, it came up, I guess, from some previous shows as well. And near the end of the show, I want to talk a little bit about something else that was raised on an earlier show that I wanted to expand upon, and basically has to do with, amazingly, how our minds work and how we arrive at our values oh. and, how we, and how a society arrives at a value. And I'm going to use a little comparison, a little analogy. But first, to start off the show, we have been having some feedback, and we wanted to do a little bit of catch-up and homework here just to get caught up on some of the things our listeners have been telling us and responding to us. Always love to hear from the listeners. Yeah, you'll recall, um, well, first of all, someone sent us an interesting thing. We uh, have not only heard from the listeners, but we hear about people who are listening to us, and one of our listeners sent us something he found 
on another site where other people are talking about us. Oh. Apparently it's an objectivist site and they were talking about Just Right. And it's obviously not in Canada because they say Just Right is a Canadian radio show with an Oist angle. I think that's their code for objectivist. <laughs> it is actually Oist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they say they talk, they talk about a lot of things from Canadian politics to science fiction with sections of the show separated with sound clips and other media. I always look forward to their new episode. The only beef I've had with them is that I don't really know what to think of their position on free will. Interesting, eh? I'm not sure I know either. (laughs) (laughs) And that was someone calling himself the frolicsome quip, sir. And so to him, uh, welcome to the show. And I know what's bothering you about our position on free will. It's the fact that you know that you were determined to listen to the show, even though you chose to do so. (laughs) That that about sums it up. (laughs) Put that in your metaphysical and epistemological blender, hey? (laughs) I do like the quote he had on the bottom of his... uh, Email, you know, people have little quotes at the bottom that they always mm-hmm. put there. I like this. Uh, this is from Aristotle. Those who excel in virtue have the best right of all to rebel, but then they are of all men the least inclined to do so. Ah, uh, yes, true. Interesting, eh? Unless, of course, you got SOPA or PIPA out there, and yeah. <laughs> then you black out Wikipedia. Seems to be the only thing they concern themselves with Amazing. these days. Now, of course, uh, you recall the last show of uh, the last year. I was I got a little silly there and did some limericking. Oh, the limericks, yes. And we put a call out for some limericks, and we got some. It was really interesting what we got. I have a few of them here. can't get to all of them. But uh, this one from Paul, I like this. Old Plato made claims metaphysical of reality. Man remains quizzical. Of ideas in God's mind, men are hopelessly blind. So unworthy and wholly nonsensical. <laughs> and then we got another one from Chad. I... Now, Chad wrote us twice, and he called to correct this one the first time, but I like both of his versions. And he wrote, uh, There once was a show called Just Right, whose hosts were both witty and bright. Of freedoms they'd speak, it made the left shriek. We're sunk if they air twice a week. (laughs) And that's from Chad. Then after he sent me that, he wrote me back again, and he said he was reviewing the rhyme pattern for limericks and discovered that that one was incorrect. Uh, and he I, said, I noticed that, too. A-A-B-B-A is supposed to be. Well, yeah. generally, but that's not always the case. No, you have and, poetic license. And I took some, too. And also, if you remember on that show, we played some limericks, and they weren't all in that rhyme scheme either, the ones mm-hmm. with Columbo and uh, I forget who else we quoted there. So there, I remember there was an A-A-B-B, and it just stopped there. So he corrected a little bit, and he said, There once was a show called Just Right, whose hosts were both witty and bright. Of freedoms they'd speak, it made the less shriek. Let's occupy reason with might. <laughs> Sounds like what's going to be happening in the park this weekend. Yes. Another occupation, apparently. Now, this letter comes from the next one, Matthew, who also sent us a limerick, but also sent us a suggestion that we will be following up on a future show, but not today. But I thought I'd bring this to everyone's attention. And he writes, I have been listening to your show for about six months. I have always identified myself as a wayward leftist, quote-unquote, and listened to your show for a different point of view. Over the months, I have noticed that I overwhelmingly agree with the two of you in terms of issues of morality, i.e. bullying, ethical oil, fact versus ideology, pointing out wrongdoing regardless of popular opinion, etc., etc. However, I find the idea of laissez-faire capitalism, or as the two of you would say, just capitalism... (laughs) (laughs) You have been listening. Yeah, he's listening, (laughs) that's for sure. To be downright scary. 
For example, or for instance, if healthcare was a transaction between private parties, what of those without the financial means who seek to seek help? For this, I seek an answer, which in turn leads me to my topic suggestion for your show. I would love it if you could devote an hour to how you would like to see Canada run under a freedom p- party and objectivism. Could be argued that you would do this ev- that you do this every week. However, what I'm suggesting is a show free from pointing out what the current governments and country are doing wrong and or opposite of your beliefs, and instead positively focused on what Canada would look like with true freedom as its guide. What would health care, education, infrastructure, defense, homelessness, taking mental health into consideration, aboriginal affairs, how would you deal with you know, the latest adipiscat, for example, etc.? How would that look like under a freedom government? If you've already done this on a past show, if you could direct me to correct archive, that would be great. I realize in September you interviewed Paul McKeever and parts of the Freedom Party's platform were discussed. However, it was understandably election issue focused and is not what I'm looking for. I'm not suggesting a show on Freedom Party's platform, but positive focus on what Canada would look like with true freedom as its guide. Thank you for your thought-provoking show and for taking the time to read and hopefully consider my letter. I'll leave you with a limerick I wrote during the recent Canadian federal election. And, uh, Matthew, here's your limerick. There once was a man from the oil sands who thought countries run on dogmatic plans. The people bent over. For five years he drove her. Oh, I get by with a little help from my friends. (laughs) Now, he asked me to sing that last part. And, you know, I I did try that, Matthew, and it didn't work out well at all. (laughs) I just can't switch from spoken word to anything in tune right away, so I'm going to have to uh, pass on that one. Now, I have already written to Matthew, told him we would be preparing such a show. Um, I hope we could air it maybe before the spring is out, because I think um, this show is not quite what I might expect. I've been giving it some thought. And I can't explain fully at this point, because my explanation may well become the framework of the whole show in a funny sort of way. So I would suggest watching out for that one in in the very near future. And, And here's what I was thinking about his suggestion, okay? It was, you know, as hard as I might try, I don't know if it's going to be possible to do it exactly the way Matthew has asked for us to do it. Because the more I think about it, his request has introduced a fascinating dilemma regarding the nature of causality itself, actually. For example, if we're going to eliminate any references to bad consequences or to the opposite of what we believe in, the consequences that we've been criticizing, there's no way to test the, vil- the validity of any assertion we make. You know, like, how would an ideal society operate? And if you don't do it this way, and we're not allowed to say what the bad way is, how can I say that's the good way? It comes down to if you don't define right and wrong, you can't distinguish between the two. Kind of like listening to libertarians who are trying to concretize their ideas of competing governments or justice on, for sale on a free market. It just doesn't work, right? So it becomes this floating abstraction. So in our case, it wouldn't be about an inability to answer such objections, because it would be a self-imposed prohibition we'd be agreeing to. So I think a show of that nature might require a twofold approach. One, to frame the context, the second, to paint the picture. Not sure how to do it yet, but that'll be resolved by the time we get around to that, Matthew. One of the things I was thinking, Robert, remember we did something similar to this, not uh, ourselves, but remember London Metro Bulletin? Mark Emery's uh, Winston, wasn't the character? 1984. What he did was, in that case, and we might have to take the story approach too, don't know yet, but in that case, I recall he uh, 
gave 1984 as it is, society as it is today, and right beside it wrote another story, 1984, as it could be, society as it could be. So you read these two stories side by side and compared a day in the life of the character Winston. And it was an interesting and effective way to do it. Perhaps we could even uh, recite from that. Yeah. Oh, possibly that may be part of it, too. So, Matthew, it was an awesome suggestion, and it was a great limerick. Thanks for both. And so expect to hear uh, that show sometime in the near future. And by the way, um, yes, a lot of your concerns about the health care issue have been already addressed on the show. I did direct... um, Matthew, to that, just write 177, 118, and 115 were complete hours just devoted to that one subject alone. And if you search for the word health on our website, www.justrightmedia.org, you'll find other shows with portions of the show dealt with that. Now, um, so that's about it. And what else did I have? Any other things? Uh, Nothing major in terms of that. Did I miss anybody here? No, that's about it. So, I guess we're going to start on our main theme now, shall we? To old time, may they never return. It's not likely. Mm. So, now, tell me just what it is you want. Well, quite a bit. And uh, what is in it for me? Very little. (laughs) Forget it. We need the defense plans to Paris. We need you to help us get him. And you want to use me to get to Hammerschlag? That's about it. That's about it? Well, what makes you think... What makes you think you can walk in here and casually ask me to jeopardize everything I've built all my life? Even risk my life? For what? What? You'll have to fill that one in yourself. Ah, for a country that gave me nothing, and I mean not a thing. Okay. Apparently, I can't compete with a Nazi general. He's a pig. But he gives my club protection. Wunderbar. And what's wrong with that? What is wrong with looking after number one? Nothing. It sounds like everything is just great. So what are you getting so defensive about? Oh, you would be a fool to trust me. You know that. Staff car outside. Looks like Hammerschlag. Where do we stand? Nowhere. Is that right? I haven't made up my mind yet. You cats amaze me. You really do. You stand here talking about this thing like you're actually going to pull it off. Keep the faith, baby. Something wrong? Oh, nothing. It's just impossible. How do you know I haven't sold you out already? That has occurred to us. And what's in it for you? Money? Medals? Oh, they're going to give you the key to the city if you ever get back to Detroit? I doubt that, rather strongly. Then why? Colonel, is that guy coming back yet? I'll let you know. I'm a mute anyway. (laughs) Okay, we've just got time for the short course. Most people go through life kind of semi-embalmed. I don't know, maybe they like it. But you're in a spot now where you've got to take a position. Either you turn us in or join up. You don't understand us. That's not necessary for now. Hammerschlag, you can understand real good. So you just ask yourself a question. Do you want to spend the rest of your life in a Hammerschlag kind of world? He's coming. Keep the faith, baby. 
well-intentioned and good people reached out to placate and reason with the beast. And civilization responded as civilization always has, by trying to wish it away, hoping the wolf would pass by the door. Peace movements, speeches, petitions, demonstrations, all tried to ward off the beast. On September 30th, 1938, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returned from Munich proudly waving a peace treaty with Adolf Hitler. Kristallnacht, November 9th, 1938. Six weeks after the Munich Peace Treaty, Hitler intensifies the systematic destruction of European Jewry, the Holocaust. The beast had always hated the same things, religion, a free press, intellectual inquiry, artistic expression, anything that elevated or empowered the individual. And yet all who called out the beast, naming it for what it really was, were vilified, considered reactionary, paranoid, warmongers. Winston Churchill, vehemently opposed by both the peace movement and the British establishment, came to power as the representative of the British workers and middle class to defend Western civilization. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Wolf had not passed by the door. War had not been wished away. The gathering storm, the conflict that would give the greatest generation its name, was now upon them. And we're back, and what I'm going to be talking about for the next uh, little while is something in response to some of our past shows feedback as well as some of the events in uh, in today some of the political events some of the current affairs there's a number of uh, number of them that have prompted me to talk about what i think is a proper policy on national defense and taking preemptive military action rather than sitting by and waiting until somebody attacks you and then att- attacking retaliation most notable we have the events in the Middle East, of course, a problem that never goes away. And uh, North Korea, you know, it's funny, Bob, mm-hmm. my father fought in North Korea that was 60 years ago. And we're still fighting the same battle today. Unbelievable. Seems we never finish them. No. But more recently, we have the uh, foreign policy statements of uh, Republican presidential candidate and U.S. Congressman Ron Paul. That also prompted what I'm about to say as well, because a number of my friends have uh, taken issue over our last show when we had Bosch Faustin on, and we talked about Ron Paul and his somewhat um, isolationist views as regards national defense and foreign policy. But let's talk about some of the uh, Mm. other events first. You know, with the Arab uprisings, many countries have decided to involve themselves in the civil war in Libya. now concluded, of course, and uh, it was done under the auspices of the United Nations, which cited the responsibility to protect doctrine. Now, I've covered this in a previous show, and I'm not going to bring it up at length here, except to say that I oppose the notion of any nation's responsibility to protect the citizens of any other nation without 
unless they're our ally and we have a national interest in it. And also, we should not involve ourselves in, in, in some other countries' internal struggles, again, if it's not in our national interest. And Libya certainly was not, in my estimation. Uh, North Korea... At least based on the knowledge we have, right? Yeah. This is one of the issues. You know, you never know what knowledge your leaders may have when they get involved in these engagements. It's always surprising to me what we learn about something 20, 30, 40 years oh, after the... Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be talking just about that. Something oh. I learned today, uh, actually the other day, when you gave me a copy of a documentary called In the Face of Evil, mm -hmm. which, by the way, we just heard a clip from and we're going to hear a little bit later on from as mm -hmm. well. Now, look, look at North Korea. You know, it's in a state of flux with the death of uh, Kim Jong-il and the rise of Kim Jong-un. Um, he may be required to prove his mettle to the North Korean generals by taunting the South Koreans or Americans, either by torpedoing another vessel like they did just recently or by shelling their territory again, which they did just recently. There are several other wars, civil wars, insurgencies, drug wars and uprisings throughout the world in over 30 countries right now as we speak on this very continent. There's a Mexican drug war, which has now claimed the lives, believe it or not, of more than America lost in Vietnam. That's amazing. Of 50,000 people murdered in Mexico only in the last couple of years. In fact, you know, there's never been a time when our own country, Canada, has not been under some form of threat, either actual or potential. Canada is only two lifespans old. And in that time, we've been involved in several wars and internal conflicts. In the recent past, we've been in Afghanistan, Libya, Bosnia, Kosovo, and have taken part in several UN so-called peacekeeping missions. And uh, during World War II, we had one of the largest armed forces in the world. Now, if we look at some of the past conflicts to see either how we or others entered into them, we may learn about the triggers necessary for military engagement. Go back to World War II. We entered it because, as a Commonwealth nation, we felt a necessity to act as the UK acted. And when Germany invaded Poland, they, that triggered our involvement as an ally to uh, other nations in peril. The United States, on the other hand, only entered after being deliberately attacked at Pearl Harbor a couple of years later. Mm -hmm. So both conditions, in my estimation, are acceptable triggers to war, the defense of allies with whom treaties have been entered into, and the defense of actual sovereign territory as regards Pearl Harbor. You know, and, and just as an aside, when we're talking about World War II here, I just want to bring a little tiny story that Bob has just given me regarding the beloved Mr. Rogers of PBS. Actually, that was sent to us by another listener, Andy. So Yes, Andy. Yeah. Thank you, Andy, for this one. And I'll just read what Andy sent us. There was this wimpy little man who's passed away, on PBS, gentle and quiet, Mr. Rogers, someone you would least ex suspect of being anything but what he now portrays to our youth. But Mr. Rogers was a U.S. Navy SEAL, combat proven in Vietnam, with over 25 confirmed kills to his name. Amazing. He wore a long-sleeved sweater on TV to cover the many tattoos on his forearms and biceps. He was a master in small arms and hand-to-hand -hand combat, able to disarm or kill in a heartbeat. After the war, Mr. Rogers became an ordained Presbyterian minister and therefore a pacifist, vowing to never harm another human and also dedicating the rest of his life to trying to help lead children on the right path in life. 
He hid away the tattoos of his past life and won our hearts with his quiet wit and charm. Mm -hmm. And here all the time, I thought he was just chilly all the time wearing all those sweaters. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely amazing. See how you can run it, you know, just completely create totally false conclusions about things you observe. That's true. Just on the most simple level. Yeah, you look at Mr. Rogers and you go, what a wimp, what a pacifist. I don't know if I'd follow that man anywhere, but when you know his past... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Then you don't. Amazing. Not sure if you want to be in the same room with him. That's right. You don't want to turn your back on him. <laughs> uh, back to Vietnam. Vietnam for the U.S. was a war which that country should not have gotten involved in. The trigger was questionable, with conflicting reports about the involvement of the North Vietnamese Navy and the uh, USS Maddox and USS Turner Joy. No formal declaration of war was issued, and over 50,000 U.S. servicemen ended up losing their lives over possibly bogus reports of attacks on those two U.S. vessels. Absolutely amazing that that war, that Mm -hmm. uh, U.S. was ever involved in that. A lot of Canadians fought in that as well. President Kennedy's blockade of Cuba is another example. He did it to prevent Soviet nuclear missiles from being planted only 90 miles from the U.S. I thought that was the great decision. But his concessions to the Soviets, which I've just learned about from your documentary, Bob, mm-hmm. that you gave me, were unwarranted and, and indicated a weakness that would be taken advantage of time and a time again by Khrushchev, prolonging the Cold War. It was only Ronald Reagan who acted appropriately to the looming and ever-increasing threat of nuclear war from the Soviet Union. Unlike his weak predecessors, whose appeasement of the Soviets prolonged the suffering of those trapped under the communist yoke, Reagan was steadfast and resolute, and through various means involving, for example, blocking trade, strategic defense initiative, and funding the Contras in Nicaragua and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, he succeeded in crippling the economy of the Soviet Union and allowed Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall. Reagan, by identifying the enemy as patently evil and refusing to compromise with that evil, freed hundreds of millions from slavery and butchery, but more importantly diminished the threat of nuclear war for his own nation. I I honestly believe that one moral judgment still carries today. The fact that Reagan said that thing, you know, that used the word, you know, the evil empire. And it it still sticks today. Yes. It it probably had more power than all the weapons. He was ridiculed for that at the time. (laughs) Oh, I know. Yeah. And a matter of fact, we're still feeling the effects of Reagan's actions. Unfortunately, with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, who turned their American-supplied arms and training onto the West. If Reagan were still in charge, I could imagine how swiftly and decisively he would have dealt with them and the Taliban today. Now, Iran. Iran is one of the greatest threats to peace we have today, and it seems that only our own Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, is willing to publicly recognize this. Kudos to Mr. Harper. His latest comment is that Iran frightens him, as well it should frighten everyone. The trouble there had a recent beginning with the propping up of the late Shah of Iran, who, while embracing many Western values and norms, held power through brutality. And with his overthrow, a segment of Iranians never forgave the U.S. for supporting the Shah. And hence, we're in the mess we're in today with Iran. The kidnapping of the staff at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran should have been another trigger to military action. Unfortunately, Jimmy Carter was the president. And the operation was botched. He tried and failed at diplomacy, and his weakness was only laughed at by the Iranian theocracy. I remember when the remaining hostages, personally, Bob, I remember this, remaining hostages were returning at the very moment that Reagan was being sworn in, the plane was leaving the ground. And at the time, I remember this so clearly, the press 
tried to say that this was a move on the part of the Iranians to humiliate Carter. But I now believe that it was the Iranians who knew full well that if they still had those hostages when Ronald Reagan was in office, they would have had Ronnie to deal with. I suspect he already had plans to invade Iran to get those hostages back, but the Iranians gave in, just as he was being sworn in as president. And what did we have today? Today we've got Barack Obama, the worst president the U.S. has ever seen, by any measure, by any standard. Not learning the lessons taught by Reagan when it came to clearly identifying the enemy, And not giving an inch, Obama is overseeing the nuclear arming of Iran, a more belligerent North Korea, and the rotting of Europe from within by the spread of Sharia. And with all these historical conflicts and the various tactics which have been used by presidents and prime ministers throughout history, you'd think that some lessons would have been learned and that a proper policy of engagement would have been developed and be backed by clear, determined leaders. We're not there yet. Now, all free nations need to define such a policy whereby the conditions or triggers for military inventions are clearly spelled out. And we're going to take a little break here now. And when we come back from this break, you're going to, I'm going to talk about what that kind of a policy should be. And uh, during this break, you're going to be hearing again from that same documentary, In the Face of Evil, which was a documentary about Ronald Reagan. So, we'll be back right after this. Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Hubris and high rhetoric. Markers laid down that would soon be called. The first call, less than 90 days into his presidency, the Bay of Pigs, an armed invasion of Cuba by a ragtag army of Cuban exiles. Initially ordering the invasion, then backing down from providing air and naval combat support, Kennedy watched some 1,600 men die or be captured Khrushchev was so cocky and sure of himself because uh, he believed that uh, President Kennedy indeed was a rookie. I mean, he has no experience. The fiasco of the Bay of Pigs rattled the confidence of Kennedy and his men. At Vienna, bullied and harassed by an overbearing Russian dictator, Kennedy sought a means of dialogue. Khrushchev saw weakness. Ten weeks later, in the middle of the night, A Red Army brigade sealed off the eastern half of Berlin and raised a monument that divided freedom from tyranny. Kennedy failed to respond. This icon galvanized the hard-line anti-communist right. Thus, the construction of the Berlin Wall became a seminal event in the Great War. Unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation October 1962. Khrushchev, in an all-or-nothing gamble, attempts the unthinkable. A first-strike nuclear capability 90 miles from the United States. The Soviets say, that's okay, it's self-defense, but we have every right. So, and they would not withdraw these missiles. 
For 13 days, the two nations stood on the brink of nuclear war. Khrushchev would resort to, you know, to threats. He thought that he would intimidate Kennedy. Kennedy ordered a naval blockade, forced the withdrawal of the missiles. However, crucial actions to pacify Khrushchev were kept secret and never revealed to the American people. Removing American missiles from Turkey, allowing 30,000 Soviet military advisors to remain in Cuba to train Castro's army. Troops that would later be deployed to Africa, Central America, and Grenada. And Kennedy gave his word, never again to try to overthrow the Castro dictatorship. at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose that war and in so doing lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. With a message you rarely heard from a politician. We cannot buy our security, our freedom from the threat of the bomb. By committing an immorality so great as saying to a billion human beings now enslaved behind the Iron Curtain, give up your dreams of freedom, because to save our own skins, we're willing to make a deal with your slave masters. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. But the establishment pandered to the country's fears. Five, seven... These are the stakes. We must either love each other or we must die. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. On election day, six days after his speech, the American people passed judgment on Ronald Reagan's ideas and elected Lyndon Johnson with the greatest landslide in American history. For Barry Goldwater, it was the end of the line. But for Ronald Reagan, the journey had just begun. In California, actor Ronald Reagan and Mrs. Reagan arrived to cast their votes in the state's primary election. He's the Republican nominee for governor. It's his first political contest. Welcome back to Just Right on CJW 94.9 FM, where you can join us in a conversation at 519-661-3600. And we're talking about triggers for war and preemptive strikes. When before the clip uh, was heard, we, we were talking about what kind of a policy should a nation have to clearly identify the enemy, to clearly identify when a country should go to war. And I think I found that, Bob, naturally, of course. It's the Freedom Party of Canada. While it's yet to field any candidates, it's put together just such a policy. And it can be found online at freedomparty.ca. 
In part, it reads, The legitimate functions of the military are to respond to and prevent unwelcome invasion of Canadian territory, attacks on Canadian territory, or other acts of war against Canada that occur away from Canadian territory, for example, as against Canadians held hostage by a foreign power or terrorist group. Activities or planned activities anywhere on the globe that have as their purpose or effect an attack on the life, liberty, or property of Canadians are legitimate triggers for military response where prudent diplomacy has failed. Now, the key point to this particular policy, Bob, is that not only does it define a direct attack on our soil as a trigger for war, but it also correctly identifies the need to act preemptively to prevent an attack. It also expands the sphere of action outside of our own territory. This would permit, quite rightly, the Canadian military to attack other countries or groups in other countries who have violated the rights of Canadians in those countries as long as diplomatic efforts have been tried and failed. Now let's look at the major threats throughout the world and see if our current government is following such a policy. It took part part in the Bosnian War while none of our interests were threatened. So I think it failed on that part. It invaded Libya where no threat to Canada or Canadians was involved. So it failed there as well. It took part in the invasion of Afghanistan at the request of the United Nations, which saw that, or sorry, not the United Nations, the United States, which saw that the actions of the Taliban in training al-Qaeda and harboring the terrorists had facilitated the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Many Canadians died in that attack, and Canada had been cited as a target by al-Qaeda. I believe our involvement there was warranted based on that information. It's a shame that the West no longer knows how to fight a war, though. And, and, And the Afghanistan war has lasted twice as long as World War II. We should also not have allowed the installation as President Hamid Karzai, a man who seems to be just as evil as the Taliban. Nor should we be spending our resources in building up Afghan infrastructure, infrastructure that we may one day just have to go out back out there and blow up again. You never thought of that. (laughs) At the time of the U.S. decision to go into Iraq for the second time, I was upset at Jean Chrétien for not helping, and livid at his comment that the U.S. only had itself to blame. While we know that Iraq did have weapons of mass destruction, and if you don't believe me, just ask the Kurds, those that survive. And while such weapons in the hands of a dictator like Saddam Hussein were a threat to his neighbors, they were no threat to us. And I now believe, in retrospect, mind you, that staying out of Iraq was indeed the better plan. Still, there was no need for Jean Chrétien to insult the Americans by saying they had themselves to blame. Well, they're following his advice now. (laughs) (laughs) As a matter of fact, you know, Ron Paul says the same thing. We got ourselves to blame. Iran is a threat to the United States. It has an official Death to America Day. It, is, it has called for the annihilation of America and the West. It is a theocracy which has involved itself in the training of terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and Hamas. It is developing a nuclear weapons program and has recently threatened shipping in the Straits of Hormuz, a vital sea transportation route of interest to many nations. And if allowed to develop a nuclear weapon, it's quite conceivable that it could put it aboard a ship and sail it into New York Harbor and detonate it. Some have said that Iran, like any other nation, has a right to defend itself 
And this is simply not true. Iran, as a despotic theocracy which does not recognize individual rights or peaceful coexistence with its neighbors, has no right to exist with its current thugs in power. It's not a particular threat to Canada or Canadians, as, it, uh, as its eyes seem more fixed on Israel and the United States. But if the U.S. is attacked, we should retaliate as an ally, if asked. Should the U.S. or Israel preemptively destroy Iran's ability to get nuclear weapons? Yes, I believe they should, very much so. They've been threatened with what amounts to a declaration of war by that government. They're developing the means to carry out such a threat. They should be stopped. Should Canada join in in such a preemptive action? Nope. We neither have the means nor is the threat to this country as real as it is to the United States or Israel. Now, libertarians in the United States, like Congressman Ron Paul, would have a dovish defense policy, very different from the one of the Freedom Party, which I just described. Ron Paul's basic policy is fight only after you've been attacked. This, of course, would be too late for those killed. And with nuclear weapons, that could amount into the millions. A preemptive policy is the only rational one today. Paul would have us remove the U.S. military out of every other country in the world. I'd, I'd grant him this one point. The U.S. has spread itself thin in the world and can certainly rein in much of its forces abroad, but, not, but to not have bases in areas which are of vital interest to its economy and survival, it's pure folly. Keep the bases in the Middle East for a possible war with Iran. Keep the military in Afghanistan because that country is far too backward to be left without being supervised by adults, <laughs> perhaps even permanently. Keep the military in South Korea and Taiwan for the possible conflicts that may happen to these peaceful and productive nations. You know, we can never forget how hostile a place the world is and how much we're all interconnected. I, I think that's the thing most people always put out of their minds. Everybody has this magical belief that we're all alike and everybody else in the world shares our values and loves freedom and wants to be individualistic when that is simply not the case. It may be the case on an individual level for the average person. Not even sure if that's true anymore. I used to believe that. Yeah, you that. know something, you're right. You know, I, I remember seeing all the Palestinians dancing in the streets when those Twin Towers fell. So maybe I'll have to take that back. Yeah, and even on some more subtle levels, people give in to statism and to big government and to issues like that without really even being aware of it. It's like John McMurray said, you know, history isn't a struggle for freedom. That's not what it's been. It's been a struggle against freedom and the responsibility that it remorse, remorselessly thrusts upon the individual, right? So that the history of mankind has been a history of, how did he put it, the twists and evasions that man attempts to avoid freedom and responsibility. Exactly. You know, an isolationist foreign policy is not a realistic one if a, a country is to maintain its interests and sovereignty. You know, however, that being said, on the flip side of it, Bob, a jingoistic country, a jingoistic policy is also not desirable. Only a clear idea of what it is you're protecting, first of all, and who your enemy is, and defining it as such, and defining it like Ronald Reagan did as evil and maintaining that, and not shirking from that, and then defining what your vital national interests are. Only then can you develop a defense policy I think is worthy of a free nation. I agree. Yep. So that's all I have, Bob. Let's go to a little clip, and I think that when you come back, you're going to be talking about the mind. 
I yeah, I guess that's one way of putting it. I guess I could ask the question, "Do you mind?" and we'll see what your question, what your answer to that is after this. Why should the Russians annex the whole of Europe? <laughs> they can't even control Afghanistan. <laughs> now, if they try anything, it will be salami tactics. Salami tactics. Slice by slice. <laughs> one small piece at a time. So, will you press the button if they invade West Berlin? It all depends. On what? Scenario one. Riots in West Berlin. Buildings in flames. East German fire brigade crosses the border to help. Would you press the button? The East German police come with them. The button. Then some troops. More troops just for riot control, they say. And then the East German troops are replaced by Russian troops. Button. <laughs> then the Russian troops don't go. They are invited to stay to support civilian administration. The civilian administration closes roads and Tempelhof Airport. Now you press the button. I need time to think about this. You have 12 hours. Have I? You're inventing this. Scenario two. Russian army maneuvers take them accidentally on purpose across the West German frontier. Is that the last resort? No. Right, scenario three. Suppose the Russians have invaded and occupied West Germany, Belgium, Holland, France. Suppose their tanks and troops have reached the English Channel. Suppose they are poised for an invasion. Is that the last resort? No. Why not? Well, we'd only fight a nuclear war to defend ourselves. How could we defend ourselves by committing suicide? So what is the last resort, Piccadilly? <laughs> Botford Gap Service Station? orbital data I asked you for. Mm, data processing now complete. Results contradictory. Contradictory? You're not supposed to come up with contradictory conclusions. You're a robot. Where's your pride? The function of any computer is to draw conclusions from provided data. If conclusions are contradictory, provided data is at fault. Oh, so now you're trying to put the blame onto me, are you? There's a lot more human in you than I thought, my metallurgical friend. There's nothing wrong with my data, but there's a good deal wrong with your conclusions. No planet could have an orbit like this. Not even this woebegone, flea-bitten chunk of depressed galactic real estate. Now go back to work and give me a few sensible conclusions. Affirmative. However, it is necessary to point out that identical data will provide identical conclusions. If you can't handle an elementary computation, what in blazes are you good for? The function of an environmental control robot is to supply all data pertinent to this particular field. That is precisely what is wrong with our civilization. Everyone is a specialist. Whatever happened to the Renaissance man? I think we might be sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> Delusions of grandeur, yes, Bob. Yes, yes, I know. You know, back on our December 8th program, we had a caller named Ron who called in. And I think we were talking about the subject of making judgments, moral judgments. And he suggested that morality was intrinsic by saying that people who acted immorally were actually defective in some way. 
And I think we made a minor objection to that, min- that little point there, but it got me thinking about an interesting dilemma that faces generation after generation. And, you know, intrinsicism represents a significant reversal in the understanding of the hierarchy of how human beings are programmed to acquire their values. And with that in mind, I wanted to use an analogy of the mind with the computer, because the computer teaches us a lot about things we might not otherwise be aware of. Now, of course, intrinsicism obliterates any effort in judging what is right and wrong and entirely ignores the real process of how we come to acquire values on which we operate, as if they were automatic or natural in some nebulous way. But I think the secret is to, about human beings is that we are creatures of habit, and that's both a good and a bad thing. And sometimes habits learned you know, and formed a long time ago appear to us to be very natural, as instinctive. But this is demonstrably not so, and nor do I think it would be possible. And to help illustrate the error in this way of understanding how we arrive at our values, let's take a look at that device that enough of us are now familiar with to visualize the principle and role that philosophy plays in each individual's personal and public life, and that's called the computer. Computers come in an infinite number of shapes, sizes, and purposes, and can be found in everything from microwaves to your television set to your car. All of them depend to some degree on computers, but those kinds of computers have been programmed by the producer and manufacturer, not the consumer, which brings us to what we can call the personal computer, a machine whose use the consumer determines. And this has been an unprecedented development in the history of humanity. The personal computer is, in fact, just one of the many consequences of the process that I'm going to try and describe. Now, facts are inescapable, but knowledge of facts is often avoided or denied. And that, too, represents a great divide in the two kinds of operating systems on which people, well, operate. (laughs) At birth... The human mind is very much like a computer that's been bought at the store before the operating system, Windows XP or whatever, is installed. And although I reject all forms of determinism, but not the laws of causality, there can be no denying that all elements of reality, including our physical brains and the system of logic on which the functioning of our brains depends, operate on common principles and laws of nature, if you will. Unlike the human or animal brain, a computer is considered to be unnatural, artificial, because such a device would not be, quote, found in nature without man's intervention. Yet I would argue a computer is part of nature because men are, and because it operates on the principles of nature. Otherwise, it would be completely unfunctional, wouldn't it, Robert? Yeah. As with any mechanical device created by human beings, if it didn't obey the rules of nature, the laws of nature, it wouldn't work. Everything your car does when you turn that key to start is perfectly natural, the consequence of the application of knowledge to nature. We call it technology. Whether we're talking about a shovel, a car, a spaceship, a microwave, or a computer. Microwaves, by the way, are natural. Man being able to create them in a safe way is not unnatural. It's the natural consequence of applying knowledge to nature. And we have to start thinking more in this way which means for many of us to reprogram our basic assumptions so that everything else in our lives makes more sense and can be more meaningful to us. So when people suggest technology is unnatural, what they really mean is that mankind is unnatural. And within this belief lies the greatest divide and division among the peoples on the earth. 
Because depending on which of these two viewpoints you share, it'll determine your entire outlook on life and everything that you encounter in the world around you. When animals change the environment around them, such as the famed Canadian symbol, the beaver, we don't hear anybody arguing that the floods caused by the beaver's dams are unnatural. Right? But if the beaver were Theodore Cleaver, <laughs> then it would be unnatural, you know, at least according to the man is unnatural viewpoint. Now, we get it all the time. The hostility expressed against capitalism and technology by so-called occupiers and other denizens of the left is really a hostility against the mind, against thinking, against rationality, against a knowledge of nature and how to apply that knowledge to the betterment of mankind. It is a movement against rationality and in favor of ignorance, namely ignorance of nature and of what's natural. It's kind of funny, isn't it, Robert? Now, that works on an individual level, but it's also the same with a culture. The laws and culture of any nation also represent that nation's operating system, if you want to look at it that way. The consequences affect all other activity within that nature, cultural, moral, economic, political, ethical. It's all framed and affected by that country or that nation's operating system. In politics, operating systems are called freedom, totalitarianism, tyranny, capitalism, socialism, communism, fascism, liberalism, conservatism, um, but, you know, but not libertarianism, which kind of lacks any operating system, <laughs> if you want to look at it that way. The other problem with many of these systems is that they are of mixed economy variety, meaning that such countries operating on competing or operating systems of operation. Imagine if you have two operating systems competing with each other. What would happen? You'd probably crash a few times, wouldn't you? And because of all the glitches in such a system, the necessity of constant updates, more laws and regulations, it's necessitated, you know, as more controlling system becomes necessary to enforce its own edicts. And most ironically, the coercive system actually attempts to protect things like free enterprise and free speech, even though these concepts are based on entirely different operating systems. When something goes wrong with the operating system, it affects all programs and may affect them in different ways. You know, I look at computer updates as adjustments in, in one's basic premise or knowledge, in this case, the computers, and, of course, proof against determinism. The argument in favor of determinism always follows that same self-contradictory path. If we could predict or know all of the factors of the future, then, of course, everything could be determined based upon knowledge of all things knowable past, present, future, which is an impossibility in physics or metaphysics or epistemology. So whether it, that computer will become a scientific experiment, a word processor, an accounting spreadsheet, a video game, a communications device, a television set, or, all of, or none of the above, all depends upon its programming. And just like a computer, the human mind even has to be programmed to be programmable. So what operating system should we all be operating on? Well, in my personal preference, it's Windows FP. <laughs> a mind programmed to operate in terms of reality, reason, self, and consent. But very unlike our computers and all the wonderful machines we build, our minds have to discover both the facts and the principles on which to program themselves. And I guess when we get to that point, then we can start talking about artificial intelligence, when machines can start doing that. And this is the remarkable possibility that I think also distinguishes human beings from all other species. This function, in essence, is what the philosophical branch of epistemology is all about. That's what we talk about on this show every week, Robert. 
The mind that abandons this process and this responsibility may not discover until too late that it's been programmed by the mind of another. So mind your own mind, or another mind will do it for you. And that's pretty well how people get most of their ideas in society. Examples, religion, status politics, unions, their operating system is not reality, reason, self-consent, but unreality, faith, sacrifice, and force. So, the next time somebody asks you, do you mind, just tell them that you do. <laughs> but make sure you're smiling when you say it. <laughs> so that was just a little comparison of, you know, comparing a computer to the human mind and how we acquire our values. Well said, Bob. Yeah. How are we doing for time there? Ed, have we got a minute or two left, or are we... We've got a minute. Okay. Can I do this? You think I should do sure, this? I sure, I think I should do that. This is fun. I got this again. This is also sent to us by Andy, and it was just a little joke he sent about a student who obtained 0% on an exam. And he says he would have given them a 100%. And it just has a dozen questions or so. So I'll just go through them quickly. These are all the wrong answers, by the way, but you can always agree with them if you want. Question one. In which battle did Napoleon die? Answer. His last battle. <laughs> Question two. Where was the Declaration of Independence signed? Answer. At the bottom of the page. Question three. River Ravi flows in what state? Answer. Liquid. Question four, what's the main reason for a divorce? Answer, marriage. Question five, what's the main reason for failure? Answer, exams. <laughs> Question six, what's, what can you never eat for breakfast? Answer, lunch and dinner. Should have known that one. Question seven, what looks like half an apple? Answer, the other half. <laughs> Question eight, if you throw a red stone into the blue sea, what will it become? Wet. <laughs> Question nine, how, how can a man go eight days without sleeping? No problem, he sleeps at night. Question 10, how can you lift an elephant with one hand? Answer, you'll never find an elephant that only has only one hand. Question 11, if, you took eight, if it took eight men ten hours to build a wall, how long would it take four men to build it? No time at all, it's already built. <laughs> and finally, how can you drop a raw egg onto a concrete floor without cracking it? Any way you want, Conc concrete floors are very hard to crack. <laughs> I always leave them laughing, Bob. There you go. And there, it just shows you, though, how epistemology works. You could look at those same questions, and that makes perfect sense on one level. It does. Depends how your mind's programmed. And that's where we got to cut it off. I'm getting the signal from Ed there, and we hope you'll join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. You can't just reorganize the entire defense of the realm just like that. I'm the Prime Minister. Yes, but... I have the power. Yes, within the law and the Constitution and the constraints of administrative precedent, budgetary feasibility and cabinet government. So you plan to buy crews instead? No, we shall buy no more nuclear weapons. But, Prime Minister... You're not a secret unilateralist. No, no, we still have Polaris. Polaris is a ramshackle old system. With Trident, we could obliterate the whole of Eastern Europe. They want to obliterate the whole of Eastern Europe. But it's a deterrent. It's a bluff. I probably wouldn't use it. Yes, but they don't know that you probably wouldn't. They probably do. Yes, they probably know that you probably wouldn't, but they can't certainly know. <laughs> they probably certainly know that I probably wouldn't. Yes, but even though they probably certainly know that you probably wouldn't, they don't certainly know that although you probably wouldn't, there's no probability that you certainly would. <laughs> Thank you.
What? 